I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our third floor Garrett studio by Julia Block, who grew up in Northern California and Sydney, Australia, a teacher, brilliant co-convener of online poetry communities, associate director of this very Kelly Writers House, co-curator of the Emergency Reading Series, fabulously talented editor, a widely published poet, author of post-psychiatric sonnets, and a series of letters to Kelly Clarkson, whose new book, I'm happy to say, is Allison Corporation, soon to be published by Sidebrow, and who, along with Michael Hennessy, is the editor of Jacket 2 magazine. And by Dee Morris, who has taught modern and contemporary poetics, including sound art, documentary, and the digital, among whose books are How to Live, What to Do, HD's Cultural Poetics, and Sound States, Innovative Poetics and Acoustical Technologies, who has written tons of fabulous essays on writing the human-machine interface, on HD's time in Philadelphia, on Emily Dickinson, and on oppositional intellectuals, and lots else. And by Annette Debo, who traveled to be with us today from Western Carolina, where she teaches classes in modernism, African-American literature, literary theory, and women's literature, whose recent, recent publications include the American HD 2012 and approaches to teaching HD's poetry and prose 2011, and who has just published an edition of HD stories and poems written during World War II called Within the Wall and what do I love? Congratulations, Annette, on that. Thank you. That's great. Just out. Yes, last Tuesday. And it Tuesday. looks good. It's a And it has a long cover. introduction. It does. <laughs> which is what scholars love. Was it easy to edit? Um, was the typescript or manuscript in good shape? It was in good shape. There are two copies, a typescript and a carbon, and she made changes on both. And it hadn't been published? It was published in a run of 300 in 1993. So it's an it's an art run, very beautiful, but not very accessible to scholars or students. And this, your edition is published by University Florida. University Press of Florida, That's yes. great. Dee, welcome back. Thank you, Al. We had a good time last time talking about Wallace Stevens. Terrific time. That was fun. We had to have you back. And Julia, thanks for coming upstairs. Thanks today. for having me. It's great. <laughs> so hi, everybody. We are we have a daunting task. We're here to talk about HD's Helen in Egypt. It's a book-length poem, so talking about the whole project is impossible, given the scope and also the mission of Poem Talk. But the work was composed by HD as a series of many short poems, and we have chosen to talk about five of these sections. And even that will challenge us. So this is a special extended edition of Poem Talk. So I'm now going to list the five poems we'll discuss, and we urge listeners to follow along with the texts, if they can, online or by reading in a copy of the New Directions, Helen in Egypt. And I'll refer to page numbers in that edition. The first three poems are sections 6, 7, and 8 of Palinode, Book 1, pages 11 through 17 in the book, where I think in all three, Helen meets Achilles seemingly in Egypt, not in Troy, and they are near the ocean on the coast in the dark. 
These three sections take HD a total of about five minutes to read. Then we move to a section later in the work, section three of Palinode, book four, pages 53 and 54 in the book. The speaker here seems to be Achilles, and he's recalling what happened to him when he encountered Helen's gaze, or the gaze of a phantom Helen. HD takes a minute and a half to perform this section. And finally, there's a section near the very end of the book, section seven of Eidolon, book three, pages 251 and 252 of the New Directions edition. Here the speaker uses the third person and seems to speak from Achilles' point of view, at least partly, and this beautiful poem makes a special distinction about the matter of Helen's beauty. The Helen of Egypt recordings are the only recordings on Penn Sound's HD page, and that's because they are apparently the only recordings anyone has of Hilda Doolittle reading. She recorded herself reading from this work in Zurich in 1955, and we note that H.D. later added the prose sections at the head of each poem that you'll see in the New Directions edition, but when the recording had been made, these introductions did not yet exist, and she came up apparently with the idea of doing those introductions or the prefatory statements, prose statements, while making the recordings. So the very fact of the recorded sound is important to the development of this work. Our five sections will take HD seven minutes and 25 seconds to read, about three times the usual length of a poem talk poem. So we ask our listeners' indulgence, and we'll be back to talk after we hear the poems. Here now is HD in 1955 performing a selection of five poems from Helen in Egypt. How did we greet each other? Here in this Amen temple, I have all time to remember. He comes, he goes. I do not know what memory calls him or what spirit master summons him to release as God released him, the imprisoned, the lost. Few were the words we said, but the words are graven on stone, minted on gold, stamped upon lead. They are coins of a treasure or the graded weights of barter and measure. I am a woman of pleasure, I spoke ironically into the night, for he had built me a fire, he Achilles, piling driftwood, finding an old flint in his pouch. I thought I had lost that. Few were the words we said. I am shipwrecked, I am lost, turning to view the stars swaying as before the mast. The season's different, we're far from, from. Let him forget. Amen, all father, let him forget. We huddled over the fire, was there ever such a brazier? A night bird hooted past. He started a curious flight, a carrion creature, what? Dear God, let him forget. I said, there's mystery in this place. I'm instructed. I know the script. The shape of this bird is a letter. They call it the hieroglyph. Strive not. It is delicate to the goddess here. She is Isis. Isis, he said. Or Thetis, I said. Remembering, recalling, invoking his sea mother. Flame, I prayed, flame, forget, 
forgive and forget the other. Let my heart be filled with peace. Let me love him as Thetis his mother. For I knew him. I saw in his eyes the sea enchantment. But he knew not yet Helen of Sparta. Knew not Helen of Troy. Knew not Helen I hated the priest. How could I hide my eyes? How could I veil my face with ash or charcoal from the embers? I drew out a blackened stick, but he snatched it. He flung it back. What sort of enchantment is this? What art will you yield with a faggot? Are you Hecate? Are you a witch? A vulture? A hieroglyph? The sign or the name for goddess? What sort of goddess is this? Where are we? Who are you? Where is this desolate coast? Who am I? Am I a ghost? You are living, O oh child of Thetis, as you never lived before. Then he caught at my wrist, Helen, a crest of Greece. I have seen you upon the ramparts. No art is beneath your power. You stole the chosen, the flower of all time, of all history, my children, my legions. For you were the ships burnt, O oh, cursed, O oh, envious Isis, you, you, a vulture, a hieroglyph. Zeus be my witness, I said. It was he, our man, dreamed of all this phantasmagoria of Troy. It was dream and a fantasy. O oh, Thetis, O oh, sea mother, I prayed as he clutched my throat with his fingers remorseless. You let me go out, let me forget, let me be lost. Oh, Thetis, oh, sea mother, I prayed under his cloak. Let me remember, let me remember forever this star in the night. I counted the fall of her feet from turret to turret. Will the count even yesterday's? Will there be five over? This was a game I played, a game of prophecy. If she turns and shields her eyes, gazing over the plain, yes. If she waits as she waited day before yesterday for ten heartbeats before the second gate, no. What was the question to which she gave the answer with the measured fall of her feet or her pause over the rampart that bridged the iron gate? Shall we strike as my legions had struck first through the long fight, or shall we take second place and leave the Trojans' fate to Odysseus? Did the command read backward? I stooped to fasten a grieve that was loose at the ankle when she turned. I stood indifferent to the rasp of metal, and her eyes met mine. You say I could not see her eyes across the field of battle. I could not see their light shimmering as light on the changeable sea. All things would change, but never the glance she exchanged with me. He could name Helena, but the other he could not name. 
She was a lure, a light, an intimate flame, a secret kept even from his slaves, the elect, the innermost hierarchy. Only Helena could be named, and she was a public scandal in any case a cause of shame to Agamemnon and Menelaus. It was not that she was beautiful. True, she stood on the walls, taut and indifferent as the arrows fell. It was not that she was beautiful. There were others, in spite of the legend, as gracious as tall. It was not that she was beautiful, but he stared and stared across the charred wood and the smoldering flame till his eyes cleared and the smoke drifted away. So let's start with the first three sections of our selection. Um, Annette, can you set the scene in the simplest sort of way? Where are they? They are in Egypt. So HD has a wide reach in myth, and she chooses to use the fragments left by Stesichorus. And so he, his, in his version of the Helen myth, Helen was never in Troy. Helen had been taken to Egypt, and it is a phantom, an Eidolon, who is in Troy. And Helen is faithful and and waiting in Egypt. So H.D. clearly doesn't use all of that myth, all of his version, but she uses part of it to displace Helen and keep her out of Troy. So, Dee, how radical is the alternative story? It's not the one most of us learned as children, where Helen was in Troy. How is it? Is it? Is the Sesochorus fragment that leads to this book, is it a radical difference? It, what difference does it make? The, the word palinote, which is the title of the first part here, means defense or explanation. Mm-hmm. And it, it, the first layer of meaning, at least, is that this, the defense of Helena, hated of all Greece, is that she wasn't there. She's innocent of all that. She's innocent of that. She's been in Egypt the entire time. So what was it that Achilles saw? Because that becomes such a big issue. A phantom. A phantom. A phantom on the wall, yes. And that's a large part of the conversation that the two of them have is about that phantom. It is, and so it leads to the questions of what is reality. Mm-hmm. Then and, and how do you find it? And how can you be sure? Since she can seem to be in two places at one time. But this is the real Helen. Let's talk about, in those first three sections of our selection, there's something at issue um, that Helen or the speaker so badly wants Achilles to forget or repress or not remember. Julia, what, take a shot at that. What is it that she is worried he will remember. Well, I'm looking at when she's, when H.D. writes, I am a woman of pleasure, and what I notice about that and line... this is in section six, the first of the selection. In section six, and it's enclosed in quotation marks, and that seems really important to me because there are lots of different voices in these selections, and they're set apart and distinguished from each other in lots of different ways, and one of them is by quotation. Um, and so to me, it's almost as if Helen is quoting herself or quoting some other version of herself and it's that version that she wants Achilles to forget or at least just kind of dislodge his assumptions about. Annette in that in that section um, the speaker seems to be Helen but she quotes herself speaking in that phrase 
It's a little confusing, isn't it? It is confusing. Um, and like Julia said, there are a lot of different speakers. So we have lines that are in italics that I think is when Helen is thinking to herself um, or, or, or praying. Or maybe an HD-inflected Helen? HD was very interested in palimpsests, and so the layering. Um, and this is this is Helen, and so this is Stesichorus's Helen, and this is Homer's Helen, and this is her mother's name is Helen. You, you have lots of layers onto most things that she wrote, and this is at the end of her body of work. And so I, I think that a lot of her techniques are taken to as far as she can at this point, um, perhaps to a more intense degree than in earlier texts. The, um, it seems that it, whatever it is that we are far from when we are on the dark beach in Egypt, that it can't be said. It seems to be almost said, but not quite. The season is different. We are far from, from, and then the italicized, let him forget. What's so urgent about Achilles forgetting? I think one of the most interesting things about this book is that it's a narrative uh, on the model of an onion. <laughs> there are many, many, many layers. Another palimpsest. Another palimpsest, right. And what she wants him to forget is the superficial interpretation that of the Helen story. Of the Helen Which, story. Which, do you mind saying? I mean, I know well, this is basic. That the Troy was lost for a woman of pleasure. That all of the Greeks died uh, in this, what she calls a holocaust in this text, for a woman of pleasure, a sensual woman, a woman who um, threw things away for er erotic pleasure. And so what she doesn't want Achilles to remember is that interpretation of her. They are now in Egypt where ostensibly, according to Sesochorus and, and Euripides as well. And she, Euripides, the play called Helen, right? That's right. Yeah, the, the, and Euripides copying Stesichorus and HD copying Euripides copying Stesichorus, talk about onions. <laughs> um, she uh, situates Helen in Egypt because Egypt is a land of mystery. Um, it's not a land of documentary. So what she wants is Achilles to forget the easy explanation of who she is so that she can introduce herself as a woman not of pleasure but a woman of wisdom and mystery. Is it possible that the last section that I'm going to put my cards on the table that I chose, <laughs> that USC acceded to, that that discussion of beauty, which seems to be from Achilles' point of view roughly, is a sign that he is beginning to learn a new way of thinking about Helen in the context of beauty. Is that an overstatement, Annette or Julia? I don't think it's an overstatement. I mean, we, he, we see near the end of that section, his eyes cleared, the smoke drifted away, so there's definitely this clearing of vision. Um, and what I find really interesting about this section is that the line, it was not that she was beautiful, 
gets repeated, but we don't like HD never tells us what she what is. What the alternative is. She's Do, just is allowing implied? these layers to, to get peeled away. Mm. Um, well, I think what's implied is that Helen's multiple selves are allowed to circulate in this text. And that's, that's why we have to have the voices in multiplicity and we have to hear from all these different versions of Helen. What art will you yield with a faggot? Are you Hecate? Are you a witch? A vulture? A hieroglyph? The sign or the name of a goddess. What sort of goddess is this? Where are we? Who are you? Where is this desolate coast? Who am I? Am I a ghost? In the eighth section of the Palinode, the third of the sequence of three, the existential dilemma is brought to a head, actually very clearly, um, on page 16 of the New Directions book. Where are we? Who are you? Where is this desolate coast? Who am I? Am I a ghost? And that, as Annette was introducing earlier, brings to the head the whole question of her needing to refute, you know, that wasn't me at Troy. This whole thing is a conspiracy of sorts. And yet, what is the effect, Julia, maybe start on this, the effect of all those destabilizing questions I think it's bigger than refuting the story of Helen of Troy. I think it, it, that it, the, the core of the feminist critique in this poem is there, there was no one there and there's no this, this myth of Helen of Troy is a myth. It's in the, bullshit. It's a lie. In the literal sense of the word, but it's a myth that has been overlaid so many times that we have to keep uncovering it over and over again. And so this text never reaches that final moment of offering an alternative version of it it just it's, has to keep it's got to do it. all of the work of peeling back peeling back and so when everything gets destabilized in this section including you know i mean achilles loses his sense of who he is and where he is i think that's some of the ripple effect of what hd is doing annette well and i think it's important that she picks helen and achilles so the most beautiful woman the bravest champion, the best warrior, and puts them together. He, in many of the versions of Helen, he's not one of the suitors. So HD has brought him in um, uh, somewhat unexpectedly um, in terms of the older myths, but they are both archetypal figures. And so they are trying to, to undo but yeah, there's no resolution. You get back at the very end to the fiery moment, what we get here at this end of section eight. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it, it's, it's a quest, but it, there, you, don't, you don't go anywhere. You stay here. And, and then you kind of, you follow all these different strands, but you don't, it's not like the male quests where you take a voyage. Um, it, it's all happening and it has happened before and it will happen again. I think one of the most interesting things that uh, really supports what you're saying here is that she calls Thetis sea uh, mother. But if you destabilize that word by just listening to the sound of it, it's seem other. And this whole 300-page poem has to do with things that we thought we know seen in some other way in which they seem other and and this so it's almost like she's invo she's invoking us to seem other yes yes wow 
it, 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 and so each time when she, in the, the headings, when she says, is it this, is it that, she's basically saying, don't ask that question. That doesn't take you anywhere. Look at how they seem other, and then you'll be introduced into the mysteries that she's talking about. When she was writing the poem, in her letters, she wanted the prose captions. If she if she had lived in an electronic age, I think you would have read the whole thing simultaneously. And they played around with different ways to present it. And I think what she wanted the most was like the prose caption on the left side and the poetry on the right side or something like that. And it just wasn't practical because the poems are so much longer than the prose captions. But yeah, they don't, they don't, you're absolutely right. They don't introduce or explain. They, they complicate and obfuscate sometimes. It seems to be the case that she did, as she read this, performed it, put it on a reel, reel to reel, that she discovered the need apparently, for the prose prefaces. So does anybody want to speculate as to what that thinking was? Was it, um, wow, have I written a wide-open poem that needs a little anchoring? But you, as Dee has just pointed out, it, it's ironic because it doesn't do much anchoring. It's sort of the prose is almost as open as the verse. What, what, what other possibilities do we have for having decided to do this? The, the scene in Palinode is H.D. in the Amun Temple, um, which the temple at Karnak, which is covered with hieroglyphs. And part, I think, of uh, the, this poem is its uh, primerness as learning to read. How do you read hieroglyphs? And you don't read a hieroglyph by discovering what it really meant which is our impulse when we go to the, the, the prose part, you read a hieroglyph by seeing the array of patterns that that hieroglyph talks about. So the vulture is Isis. The vulture is a real vulture coming down on the beach. The vulture is Helen. The vulture is Hecate. The, all at once. And where the truth is, is in the multiplicity, not the singularity. I said, there's mystery in this place. I'm instructed. I know the script. The shape of this bird is a letter. They call it the hieroglyph. Strive not, it is delicate to the goddess here. She is Isis. Isis, he said, or Thetis, I said. Remembering, recalling, invoking his sea mother. So let's take Dee's suggestion just there and look together at section 7 of Palinode Book 1. That's page 13 and 14. And let's see if we can do a little close reading to bear out what Dee just said. Um, Helen says, there is a mystery in this place. Achilles is out, is out of his element. Am I right about that? He's, he really needs to be on the plane of war, and he's now in her place. There is a mystery in this place. I am instructed. I know the script. He, he doesn't know how to interpret stuff, and this is her territory, right? The shape of this bird is a letter. They call it the hieroglyph. Strive not. Why would she say strive not? It is dedicate to the goddess here. She is Isis. She's, this is a pedagogical thing. She's teaching him, as Dee was suggesting, how to read, and implicitly us too. 
seems a very, very radical moment. Am I overreading that? I don't think so, because the whole second book, um, second part, I should say, is set basically in a Greek um, terrain. And what she talks about in that is how Greek things are identified with rationality and clarity and light. And Achilles, he's a warrior. You can't say, maybe maybe I should fight, maybe I shouldn't fight, I don't know, is it true? You have to fight. So he, he completely is out of his element here, and what she's trying to do is hook him back to when he might have known these truths um, through his mother, Thetis. Julia? What I find interesting, too, is how later in the next section on page 16 of the New Directions edition, Achilles uses hieroglyph as an epithet. He mm-hmm. says, what are you, which? Um, vulture, hieroglyph, the sign or the name of a goddess. So it's almost as though he's been instructed to read, but it, it doesn't turn out well. You know, He's he, not getting it. Yeah, he's, he's instead... I, I think actually starting to understand that the hieroglyph of Helen, the sign of Helen, is the problem. He doesn't get it, but Annette, do we eventually get it? Does HD want us to go from the wide open openness of the beginning of this poem to being able to understand the hieroglyphic mode of the text? Or are we supposed to be in Achilles at sea, as it were, position all through? In terms of the ending of this, it doesn't, it's not as positive a poem or as healing, looking positively to the future as trilogy is. That poem, you, you finish it and you think, okay, she has offered answers to war. When she's writing this poem, we, have, we are in another war. So the Cold War has started. We, have, we are in the Korean War at this point. She is very familiar with the bombs the developments at Los Alamos, she knows what's going on. And she did see another major war coming. So I, I read, I think one of the readings of this poem is a meditation on war. And at the end, I don't think this time she says, yes, it won't happen again. She says it keeps happening. And, and you end with that moment. So at the end of section eight that we have heard tonight, Achilles is strangling Helen. And yes, you get we that, haven't mentioned that. No. <laughs> you get that dichotomy between Helen, while he, it says, as he clutched my throat with his fingers remorseless steel, she thinks, let me go out, let me forget, let me be lost. Mm-hmm. And then in the next stanza, she says, let me remember, let me remember forever the star in the night. And that juxtaposition we see repeated extensively at the very end of the whole volume. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that there is a rational answer here. Is this a modern poem? It sound, we're talking about it very much in that way, but I want to just make sure we're all on the record. This is a modern long poem, a modernist long poem. Dee? It's not a modernist long poem like the Cantos, where I think Pound really did think that he had gotten to the essence of things. I I think one of her readings of war at this time is that it is the mentality of getting to the essence. It's a kind of fundamentalist mentality. Uh, Helen is bad. 
uh, <laughs> Achilles is good. Uh, women are uh, sexual. Men are warriors. It's that's the enemy, that mindset. And so uh, I think it's it, it it takes place in a kind of postmodern limbo that it benefits if you think of it as a kind of penchant place. It's just a weird place where things that contradict each other are both true. So it's either late modern or after modern. Annette reminded us that it's in a way a Cold War text. You're talking about Pinchon. So, you know, this is unclassifiable, I suppose I would say. Julia, what do you think? The poem itself announces itself as unclassifiable. I mean, in couple of the sections that we didn't read today because we don't have a recording of HD reading them, she describes Helen's voice as both lyric and heroic. So this, this long poem is really grappling with how do, you, how do you write a lyric into an epic poem? How do you write the first person into an epic poem? And I think for HD, that, that problem is a problem of gender. I stood indifferent to the rasp of metal and her eyes met mine. You say I could not see her eyes across the field of battle. I could not see their light shimmering as light on the changeable sea. All things would change, but never the glance she exchanged with me. This is in Palinode, Book 4, Section 3, page 53. And once upon a time when I was first encountering the concept of the gaze, somebody told me to read Helen in Egypt, which was quite a really? fabulous <laughs> thing. <laughs> and as I was rereading it uh, to prepare for our discussion, I noticed that this is such a great basic way of understanding the gaze. Um, can we talk about the way the gaze works there? I mean, the, first of all, I just want to say that the poem ends with an uncharacteristically fabulous perfect rhyme, the, this poem ends in a kind of ABA conven- a triad that ends somewhat, I'm going to say, conventionally. So I'm not sure how that fits in. But anyway, what's happening here? Annette, tell us what's happening here at this point in the story. Achilles is speaking here, and so he is watching um, Helen and I'm watching her very specifically. So he is treating this as a, a game of prophecy, it says in the prose caption. And he will watch Helen measure her paces, the direction she takes, how and where she looks. And in the poetry, he is counting, counting footsteps, um, trying to use that to measure something. It keeps tying back to what's happening in the war. Uh, the Trojans' fate, leaving it to Odysseus. Did the command read backward? So it's it's almost as if he tries to use her actions to predict what will happen in the war, in a way, which makes as much sense as blaming her for the war. Yeah, Julia, and it's so cyclical. I mean, he sees her walk this walk over and over and over again, and we see her on the ramparts over and over again. And I can't read, you know, count the fall of her feet um, and then measured fall of her feet without thinking about the poem itself. So in a way, he's he's marking the poem. And if we remember that the story of Helen is told in a poem, and that's how it's been passed down in Western culture, then it becomes even more hieroglyphic, This, the way that HD's you know, conveying the story of Helen to us. So he's been doing this careful looking at her from a distance across the battlefield, 
But then he claims that there was a moment where their eyes met, and he implies a kind of mutuality, which couldn't possibly have been. Then he explains himself. You say, I could not see her eyes across the field of battle. He had just said her eyes met mine. I could not see their light. So he's telling us negatively, he's giving us a romantic trope, a cliche, I think, of what he would have seen in her eyes, even though we know he's admitting he couldn't possibly have seen them. Shimmering as light on the changeable sea, all things would change, but never the glance she exchanged with me. How do you interpret that, Annette? It seems like part of the gaze is that the viewer imagines a response from the object that's being viewed. And when we think of the images that have been painted of Helen, a lot of them are her on the ramparts. And so all of a sudden, we too are complicit with Achilles and the view, the gaze and looking at Helen. And even if we don't blame Helen, she she is blamed and, and we're doing and we are part of that so is yeah it's a, way it's out a of nice that problem <laughs> i if i had thought of teaching this with laura mulvey's essay i think i would have um oh, so it, i guess somebody who advised me was on to something <laughs> it's nicely a, done yes is there a way out of this problem I think what's wonderful about the the end of this is the way out of the problem of the gaze, which is generally theorized as a controlling male gaze, wanting to possess a name and and uh, pin down, is mutuality. So the what happens here is an exchange, not a one-way fixing, but an exchange. So. He learns from her, she presumably learns from him, and in the exchange, there's uh, an explosion of possibility rather than the fixed male objectifying gaze as it was theorized in the late 80s and 90s. Interesting. Julia? I think, and I think what makes this a postmodern poem, to pick up on what Dee was saying earlier, is I, I often contrast it to an earlier poem about Helen that H.D. wrote in 1924 called Helen, in which we get a Helen who's just a, just a statue. And she doesn't look back at you and she doesn't speak. And all we get is the gaze. All we get is, is the, the hateful gaze upon Helen. But here, I mean, for one thing, it's 300 pages instead of one page. Um, there are multiple, multiple voices and time registers. And, um, and she's, she's doing something quite different. You know, we could talk for hours and hours and hours about this. Clearly, everybody's nodding. So I thought it might be good for pseudo wrap-up if we just went around and each of us said one more thing that really should be in the record because I think a lot of people listening to this will be experiencing talk about Helen of Egypt for the first time. Some people will run out and buy the book and follow along with us. And so what would you like them to hear that hasn't been said? And I'm looking at Dee. What do you think, Dee? Do you have a final word? Well, uh, one thing that hasn't been said is um, there's a very intricate uh, layered relationship between parts one, two, and three. So the complications that we've made of the sections that we've been talking about are multiply complicated by the echoes and re-echoes and image network, if you might say, between one, two, and three. 
So in some ways, to read this, again, I would go back to somebody like Pynchon. You have to dwell in it. Um, you have to live in the anguish of not knowing. And mm. to, so I guess what I would urge is for people to take the time to read the whole thing and not try to dissolve it into some fact structure, but try to hear its overlays and resonances and chords. Thank you, Dee. Julia, final word? I love that. And Dee, you've written about how we really have to read this poem as a dramatic piece. It's more than visual. And so I love the idea of the sound coming out. Um, But really quickly, I'm looking at page 252, the last section that we read for today. Um, and this line, it was not that she was beautiful that gets repeated. And it, I always think of the, the, this line in Euripides in which Helen says, if only I could have been erased like a picture. And I'm sure HD must have been fascinated by the palimpsestic suggestion of that line. And here it's almost as though Helen gets erased, but she keeps, she keeps reappearing like the trace keeps, um, keeps appearing again and again to us. Nice. Annette? I think I'd like to emphasize sound as well. We read these poems and we expect them to coalesce into an answer. And we read them very rationally. And you certainly can read this this way. And it does have a specific trajectory. But it's also the sound and just the the majesty of the poetry and the combination with the prose there's a lot to be said for that and the way that she is playing with with names and with sounds and with chaining and linking of sounds that we want to keep in mind the the poetic beauty of the words i tell my students to just read for that the first time and then the next time see uh, what sense we can make of it and then we'll try to come to some sort of compromise there in the end Thank you. We like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, a chance for several of us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. So who would like to gather some paradise? Julia? I want to hail a new book by Sarah Dowling, who's a frequent Poem Talk panelist and also international editor for Jacket 2. And her book is really palimpsestic. It's called Down, and it's out from Coach House Books, and it takes up pop songs and Frank O'Hara lyrics and remixes them and erases them. It's a fascinating, witty, uh, highly emotionally impactful book that I'm totally in love with. Great. Thank you. Dee? Um, I would like to mention a piece by Mary Hickman, which was uh, just published by Jacket 2, edited by Julia. Um, And it's about erasure poems. So it's about poems that work by erasing part of the structure of another poem, like Jen Bourbon's Nets, uh, where she erases S-O-N in uh, Shakespeare's sonnets. So if you want to see a, uh, a visual correlation of what HD's trying to do, forget, remember, remember, forget, that's a beautiful example as published in Jacket 2. Thank you. Love the, love the shout-out to Jacket 2 and to mm-hmm. Julia Block right here. <laughs> Annette Debo, thank you again for coming all this way. Do you have... Uh, 
a recommendation for us? I would. I'd like to mention at the end of September, there's a conference called Furious Flower up at James Madison University. It happens every 10 years, once a decade. And it brings in scholars and poets, which is half the fun. And it also produces, it will produce DVDs and a collection. So it has, it will have recordings of many of our great living African-American poets. That's great. Thank you. I'm going to, my gathering paradise is ridiculous and obvious. And that is simply to say yet again that everybody should read HD, reread HD. Uh, I think it's endlessly interesting and instructive and uh, I've been really enjoying it. So back to HD, raw HD. Well, that's all the letting him forget we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs and Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks to my guests, Dee Morris, Julia Block, and Annette Debo, and to our engineer today, Chris Martin, and to our editor, Allison Harris. Next time on Poem Talk, we'll talk about a poem by James Schuyler with Julia Block. Erica Kaufman and Bernadette Mayer. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us again for that or another poem talk.